Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be back tonight. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to go to the back side of the Gospel of Luke, having been towards the beginning of it this morning. And our passage is going to be Luke 24, verses 36 to 49. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 36 of Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and blood and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for that scene and the resurrection appearance of Jesus before his people in which he commits us to the work of this age. Uh, Father, would you help us to understand what Jesus is calling us to do and also the great promise that you attend with it. Bless us tonight through your word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I find that for most Christians, the first coming of Jesus ends with his resurrection. Maybe thinking, well, that's, isn't that right? Well, well, no. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, and he was raised from the dead. And then the next thing we think about is the second coming of Jesus, when he will return in the glory to bring an end to all things. Now, what are we leaving out? We're leaving out the important doctrine of the ascension of Christ, his present reign at the right hand of the Father, and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And I do think that we are living in a time when the neglect of that in our thinking and our spirituality is fairly widespread. I think a good example is found in the Christian pledge that is recited at many evangelical Christian schools. I don't know if you use this pledge or not. I'm not against it if you do. I pastored a church in Florida that used this pledge, and it goes like this. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands, one Savior crucified, risen, and coming again with life everlasting for all who believe. Now, you can't say everything in a short creed, but notice, I think it's characteristic of us. He came, he died, he was risen, he's coming back. And what we don't think about is the reign of Christ in this age of the gospel. Now, one result of that is we tend not to think of Jesus' present activity. What we are doing now is our ministry. We look back to his first coming with such gratitude. We look forward to his return, but in our thinking, for now, we're pretty much on our own. Well, that is not true. 
And that perspective could not be uh, uh, stated of the four evangelists of the New Testament because they greatly emphasized the ascension of Christ and his present ministry for and through the church. Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission. Jesus met with his disciples prior to his ascension. He charged them, go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then he said, behold, I am with you always, even now to the end of the age. That part of Jesus being with us in our missionary labor is essential. Now, I think the clearest link, however, is found in Luke's gospel between Jesus' first coming and this present age of the world. And that's not surprising because this is the one who wrote not only the book of, Acts, uh, of Luke, but also the Acts of the Apostles. And at the heart of Luke's final narrative is the Lucan version of the Great Commission in verses 45 to 49. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day he should rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you. But stay in the city till you are clothed with power from on high." Well, we saw this morning that Jesus has come as a missionary, and there was a character to his ministry. The purpose of missions is the proclamation of his word for salvation. The power is the spirit working through the word. And then we saw the people of missions are those who have been saved by that grace. Well, I've got three more Ps tonight. I don't ordinarily do that, by the way, but if it works out, I will take it. As we consider Jesus here, his calling of the church in its mission to the world, we see the place of missions, Christ's plan for missions in this age, and the promise of mission, missions prior to his departure for heaven. Well, let's look at the place of missions. Luke 24 presents three post-resurrection scenes. This is a resurrection chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And first we have the scene of the women at the empty tomb, and then the encounter of Jesus with the Emmaus Road disciples. And then finally, his appearance to the 11 apostles, the disciples, in his glorious resurrection body. Now the last of these occurred, I think probably, in the very upper room where so many other uh, great events had happened. The Last Supper had taken place there. And Jesus appears to them in verse 36. He says, peace to you. And always slow to believe. They're startled, we read. They're, they're frightened. They thought they saw a ghost. And so Jesus then labors to show them he's not a ghost. He has the meat. By, by the way, this means that in our post-resurrection bodies, we'll, we'll eat and have, in, in the age to come. We'll, we'll be eating, I, no doubt the best tasting food then will be good for you, so contrary to the current situation we're in. But he's showing them, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. He's proving that he is actually in his resurrection body. Now there's a reason Jesus went to such lengths to, for his disciples to absorb the reality of the resurrection. One reason we see is that he didn't want fear to cripple them. Uh, one writer observes only the living Christ was able to conquer the fear, perplexity, and doubt of his disciples. Remember, Jesus had just been crucified. And so their fear is conquered by the risen Christ, and he's preparing them with courage to enter into the world as preachers of the gospel. That's one explanation. Another answer is he wanted them to realize that his own ministry 
had not ended, but in, and this is the truth, that Jesus' own ministry was just beginning with the cross and the open tomb. His resurrection had opened up a missioned work that far transcended what they previously imagined. Now, interestingly, there are 10 post-resurrection appearances of Christ recorded in the four Gospels, plus there's one in the Apostle Paul. In eight of these, Christ explicitly gives a charge to his disciples to serve him. And in five of them, he commands that the gospel be preached to the world. Well, clearly, it was essential to Jesus, therefore, that his disciples viewed his death not as a defeat, but as a victory. And they would understand their own role in the great evangelistic work of the age that was to come. Now, as we read Luke's Gospels, it can seem like all of this is taking place in a short amount of time, maybe in an hour, maybe only a couple of days. But Acts chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that Jesus actually taught the disciples over a 40-day period, speaking to them about the kingdom of God, Acts 1, 3. And so, in other words, after his resurrection and before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gave a six-week seminary course to the disciples. Its curriculum centered on the Bible, and it reviewed all that he previously had been teaching them. We might think, wouldn't it be great to know what Jesus taught? Well, we don't have to ask. It's seen in the preaching of the apostles. It's seen in the New Testament letters, but it's concentrated in this great commission he gives them. He centers it in terms of three doctrinal headings. First, his atoning death. Second, his victorious resurrection. And third, the church's call to world missions and evangelism. Let's go back yet again, verses 44 to 47. These are the three doctrinal things. Jesus says, these are the sum this is a summary of the Bible. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now that means the whole Old Testament. That's a way of saying the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the three categories. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said, thus it is written. Okay, here's the message of the Old Testament. That the Christ should suffer. On the third day he should rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. If someone says to you, what is the core message of the Bible? Well, Jesus says here is that our Savior must die for our sins, he must rise in conquest over the grave, and then he, through the spirit-empowered witness of his gospel, he actually gathers in a harvest of people for salvation. He says the entire Bible proclaims and prophesies three great redemptive events by which God the Father accomplishes his work, the atoning death of Jesus, the victorious resurrection, and spirit-empowered missions through the church that repentance of sin and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now, that is the historical progression of Christ's saving work. Now, let me point out that two of those things have already happened. Jesus has already died on the cross for our sins. He has already been raised from the dead. One of those is currently happening, namely the spirit-empowered witness of his church to the forgiveness of sin and the power of repentance. 
Let me note further that two of those three things were performed by Christ himself apart from our participation. You and I did not die with him on the cross. No, we have union with Christ, but he did the dying for us. He rose from the grave. But the third is the one that he does through us. Now, I'm going to argue, therefore, that missions has the place of primacy in the New Testament church. Jesus says three things have to happen for scripture to be fulfilled. Two of them have already been done. One of them is happening now. Two of them he did on his own for us. The third he does through us. I want to argue, according to Jesus, in the Luke's version of the Great Commission, that evangelism and foreign missions, spirit-empowered missions, is the reason this age of the world exists at all. What is the great thing happening in 2022? I assure you it does not involve the NFL, and I congratulate you for being here, although it shouldn't have to be congratulated. I don't mean to insult you. Of course you're here. But uh, it's, not, it's not the politics, my friends. It's not the politics. Isn't it great to know? Oh, because there's no hope in There is no hope in that. It's, it's, not, it's not science, the great savior of our time. No, 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 what's happening in 2022 is the gospel's being proclaimed, that sinners are coming to new life, the church is growing, and, and, and the harvest is gathering in, and when it has all been gathered in, the age will come crashing down. What, what a better way to see the primacy of missions in your, your personal life as a Christian in your life as a church, in our life together as a church, it is the reason this age of the world exists. You and I, and, and, and we need to recover, I think, in our day, as some other generations had, a sense of passion and excitement and of the priority of place to spirit-empowered missions that, rep that forgiveness and repentance of sin should be, should be proclaimed in his name beginning with Jerusalem. That is the place of missions. Our missionary labor, which takes place in our church, it starts in the nursery. We actually have a Sunday school class for the two-year-olds in our nursery. And there's a couple who've been doing that for years, and it's happening in your homes. It starts with our little children. It starts with our local evangelism. It involves our foreign missions. It is the great defining work of this age of the world. That's the place of missions. But not only does Jesus teach us the place of missions, he actually, and how helpful is this, he actually specifies the plan for missions. And his plan involves what we are to do and where we are to do it. What is this work of missions that is the great thing going on in the world? In our, I know the world doesn't notice it, by the way but Christ notices it. It's the truth of what's going on. And that's the great thing. Well, how, how then are we to do it? Well, the what of missions is made clear to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah for the forgiveness of sins and for repentance. Now, repentance and forgiveness, there's a, there's a duplex gratia I've mentioned before. Be us in the double cure, cleanse us from its guilt and power, forgiveness and a transformed life. It's the full-orbed gospel, not just forgiveness only, and you remain the same person you were. No, you're a new man in Christ, a new woman. And we're to proclaim that on the basis of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, what, that is the what of missions. By believing on his death and resurrection, 
that we are cleansed from our sins and renewed to sin no more. John Bunyan explains his meaning. Jesus says, I will that all men everywhere would repent of their sins and accept mercy at God's hand through me, lest they should fall in the final judgment. The preaching of that gospel. Now this means today that our Christian witness must highlight sin as the great problem of the world. The Christian witness is not a Christian witness if we do not highlight sin as the great problem in the world and then faith in Christ's death and resurrection as its only remedy. My friends, we must preach sin and yes, judgment whether it is popular or not. People say, oh, I don't want to talk about judgment. Well, do you love, there is a judgment coming. I'm preaching Jeremiah in my morning series, and Jeremiah is harping on the Babylonian invasion, and even the Christian readers goes, oh, there he goes again. Let me guess, another chapter on the Babylonian invasion. But it's going to happen. And we look back, and it did happen. And there is a final judgment coming. And sin is the problem. People do stand under the judgment of God. And whether it's popular or not, whether, whether it's th thought to be a culturally creative strategy for evangelism or, or not, we must preach it, says Jesus. We must preach sin and judgment. The great problem with the only remedy of the atoning death and victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, many Christians today consider the teaching of sin to be an embarrassing impediment to the success of Christ's church. Some years ago, I went to a church to be their new pastor and I, I, I did what I think pastors often should do. I wanted to make sure they were all straight on the gospel. And I preached a series of sermons on the miracles of Jesus because the miracles are little pictures of sin and salvation. All the various afflictions, blindness, demon possession, lameness, they're all pictures of sin and its effects. And then the miracles are little vignettes, pictures of Christ's redemptive work. And so I preached sermon after sermon. And this older man came up to me afterwards, and after like my fifth sermon, he said, I'm the new pastor, and this is the kind of thing new pastors often hear. You're killing this church. You're, you're, you're killing this church. And I said, well, I didn't move here to do that. We just, you know, I don't mean to. How am I killing the church? And he said, sin. You have talked about it in every single sermon you have preached. Sin and blood. Sin and blood. And I was less suave. I'm, I'm a little... You know, my, my wife says we've been made a little wise through suffering, and I, I was more of a firebrand then. And what I said to him is what I still think, but might say differently now. I said, I may be killing your church, but I'm building Christ. And my friends, that is the simple truth. We are not building Christ's church unless we're preaching sin, judgment, blood, and resurrection. That is the message Jesus says we are to proclaim. We are not to downplay these categories. It is the problem. People are under the wrath of God. They are in the grip of sin and its power and its misery. The only hope is Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross and that resurrection power that comes through the open grave and, and now the Holy Spirit who sent from heaven, we must preach it. I think it's blasphemous to say we should, not, we should downplay the blood of Jesus Christ. The reason the Son of God was incarnate and came into this world was that he should shed his blood in atonement for our sins. Who are we to downplay it? And if we love people, well, it's only that Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, who offers repentance and remission of sin. That is the what part 
of Christ's plan for missions. But there's a second part, and it's the where. So we're to do, the place that this is the most important thing going on today, and what we're supposed to do is to proclaim sin and judgment with it and the Christ's death and resurrection for forgiveness and repentance. That's what we're to do. How exciting it is, by the way. But where are we to do it? And Jesus answers in verse 47, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now this is the missions plan that Jesus gave to his disciples. We are to begin at home witnessing, bearing testimony to, proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus and we're to go from there to all the nations. Some people think there's a tension between local evangelism and foreign missions, but Jesus commands them both. He puts them together. In fact, it's through local evangelism, witnessing to your friends, inviting them to church, the, the word being preached to them. They're so today, there's you know, giving them a sermon download so that they can hear it. We're witnessing the gospel to them. That's how we get the missionaries. Now, they are the people of missions, as we said today. When Jesus says, you are my witnesses in verse 48, that includes every believer. And so I said this morning, I challenge you this morning, I'll challenge you again. Every one of us should be involved in evangelism. If you say, well, I, I don't feel great, then pray about it. Pray about it. Pray for God to make you more, more bold, to care more about the lost. Pray for a specific person. Ask for him to create the opportunity. I, I tell you, you start doing this, you'll be witnessing. And you should want to do that. And I know you want to do that. But you see, but that's where we get the missionaries from. Alexander McLaren wrote, a wise and Christ-like generosity will not gaze far afield and neglect things close at home. The Lord of the harvest has bidden the reapers begin in the fields nearest to them. It's out of the harvest of evangelism that we gain missionaries to go far away. Let me give an example of this principle beginning at Jerusalem. It's found in the example of Charles Simeon in the early 18th century in Cambridge, England. He was a pastor of Trinity Church. And Simeon was a bold preacher of the gospel who was completely ridiculed by the university community and by his own elders. Whenever I think, of, think about troubles I'm having at church, I think about Charles Simeon. His elders one time, because they didn't want people to hear him preaching, they locked the pews. And so the people stood around the, in the aisles and heard him preach. They locked the doors. The people stood on the outside and he opened the windows. And the university com community completely ridiculed him, just as society ridicules the gospel today. But God blessed his word, that Isaiah 55 passage we read, it. his word goes forth not in vain. And a, and a group of students were converted by the power of Christ and they were called the Simeonites. And they, they included a number of young men who went on to make a great impact on the world. One of them was Henry Martin. Martin was a college student at Cambridge from an evangelical home, but he had not turned seriously to Christ, particularly after his father's death. But then he began attending Trinity Church and he started interacting with the young Christians there. And he was converted by the preaching of the word and he, he began to grow as a young Christian, how often that happens. And under Simeon's influence, he began to read missionary biographies and to follow reports from missionary societies. I hope that's going on here. I hope you're, in, and how great it is to know the prayer requests and oh, read missionary biographies, totally inspiring and, and follow these things. Simeon was a, was a promoter of missions and Martin got caught up in this. And the Lord laid on his heart the desire to go east to India as a bearer of the gospel in the early 1800s. Well, there's a great struggle. 
He questioned the motives of his own heart. He wrestled with the objections of so many of his friends. Again, Christians tried to talk him out of it. They thought it reckless. But uh, Henry Martin went to India. He arrived as a missionary and Bible translator, and he faced colossal obstacles to the gospel. The English hated the natives. It's the, when the British occupation of India. The natives hated the British. They hated the British man's religion. Both the occupier and the occupied were against the idea of evangelism and the spread of the gospel. So what did Martin do? Well, he began applying the principle he'd learned from Charles Simeon to begin with Jerusalem in order to reach the world. And he started with his Indian language teachers. He'd gone to India, he needed to learn the language. He had tutors, so he started evangelizing his tutors. One was a Muslim, one was a Buddhist, and he devoted hours of discussion and debate with them and prayer for their souls, and always he relied on a clear presentation of Christ and the gospel. He says this, I lay not much stress on clever arguments. To preach the gospel with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, that is the way to win souls. That's what Jesus thought too. That was the beginning of Martin's epic missionary service in India, which over many years and through great suffering was used by God to save a very small number of Indian people. But others were inspired by that, and another, an old new wave of missionaries came, and they led to more converts, and these small labors beginning in Jerusalem and extending to the world would ultimately lead to the conversions of millions of the Indian people. To proclaim Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness and repentance of sin, to start at your little Jerusalem, and then to go to the end of the world. That's Christ's plan for missions. I do want to notice something, however, something wonderful about Jesus' words beginning at Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem wasn't just nearby. What else was Jerusalem on the night of Jesus' resurrection? It was a city that had just crucified him. And this, above all, I think, should prove his mercy and grace for the chief of sinners. In our worldly thinking, we might expect Jesus to say, I want you to send the gospel to the ends of the world, proclaim my death and resurrection for the remission of sins and repentance, but, do, but not Jerusalem. They had their chance. It's the people of the old covenant. Remember the things they said in John's gospel, let his blood be on my head, well, so be it. Not, not everywhere but Jerusalem. Or we might expect him to say, proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth, and then at the end, come back to Jerusalem. That is not what he said. The city that most signified apostasy and rebellion and autonomous man in all his pride, he says, I want you to preach beginning at Jerusalem. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame, I hope you read John Bunyan's. I've discovered that young people don't read Pilgrim's Progress. Read Pilgrim's Progress. Parents, read Pilgrim's Progress to your children. He wrote a short verse on this segment of a verse. The book was titled, The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. And Bunyan pointed out that Jerusalem was the place wherein the prophets, Christ and his people, were most horribly persecuted and murdered. She feared not to commit the biggest sins and to bind herself by wish under the guilt and damning evil of it, saying when she had murdered the Son of God, his blood be on us and on our children. 
And this shows us, as Bunyan says, that Christ would have mercy offered in the first place to the biggest sinners. And this is why, by Christ's command and to the glory of his grace, the very first preaching of the gospel was given in Jerusalem to the very worst of Jerusalem sinners, yes, even to those who were the murderers of Jesus Christ. Now one thing this shows, I think it wonderfully proves, that the worst sinners possible are not only invited to come to Jesus and be forgiven, but they are especially desired by Jesus to come to him and be forgiven. Do you realize if that is true of you, if you believe that you are a great sinner, Jesus especially then desires to show you his saving grace. Why? So that his gospel will have the greatest praise to the grace and power of his Father. Peter preached in Jerusalem, repent and be baptized. This is what Peter actually preached on Pentecost Sunday, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see the relationship of what he preached to the commission Jesus had given him? And Bunyan imagines the replies, but I was one of those who bore false witness against Jesus. Is there grace for me? For every one of you. But I was one of those who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Peter says, I am to preach repentance and remission of sins to every one of you. But I was one of those who spat in his face. I mocked him when in anguish he lay bleeding on the tree. Is there room for me? For every one of you, Bunyan writes. Oh, what a blessed every one of you is here. How willing was Peter and the Lord Jesus by his ministry to catch these murderers with the word of the gospel that they might be made monuments of the grace of Jesus. So I would argue let this be the final plank in our Christ-given plan for missions. We will preach Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness and repentance of sin. We will start at home, and from home we will go to the ends of the earth, especially towards those who are the most vile, most sinful, most shameful, most lowly, who have injured and despised us the most. You see, in doing so, we will magnify the mercy of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Our witness will amaze the world at how different are the followers of Christ and how great is the power of the God who blesses the witness of his people. Indeed, let our own church be filled with Jerusalem sinners, those who know the height and depth of their sin, but also the height and depth of the love of him who forgave us by his blood. Well, I want to conclude tonight with encouragement that if you take up this call of missions, and as you do, you have. I'm not telling you to start a missions program, but as you go so, as you do so, I want to encourage you, not only is this the most important thing going on today, that we do so according to a clear plan from the Lord Jesus, but that your labors in the missionary calling of Jesus will never be in vain. How can I say that? because of the promise that Jesus gives for mission. We've seen the place of missions, the place of priority. We've seen the plan of missions. But there's the promise in verse 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, so, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high.
Now, we know from the book of Acts how this proceeded. The disciples stayed in Jerusalem. They gathered praying in that same room. The same, I think the same upper room seems to be where Pentecost took place. Because in the timing of the Lord, the Holy Spirit fell upon them from heaven and was sent by him, and he empowered his missionary church. And by the way, Pentecost happened once for all. We don't have our own private Pentecost. Pentecost happened as a great act of Christ, pouring out his spirit upon the church for evangelism and missions, and with it comes this promise, you will be clothed with power in your missionary witness of the gospel. Well, let me conclude then with two applications. And the first is that the way Jesus instructed his first disciples is a good way for us to begin our witnessing. Acts 1 verse 14 says that while the original disciples were awaiting the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they were devoting themselves to prayer. So we have a plan for missions. We, have, we know the place of it. We have a plan. He's promised the power, but you say, but it hasn't, it hasn't borne fruit yet. Maybe you're Henry Martin, and you're pouring out the years of your life in suffering, and you have no converts for years, and then you have one, and then towards the end, you're dying. He died rather young. You've got a very few. What should you be doing while you're waiting for this power to come? You should be praying. You should be devoting yourself to prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer. We should ask God to give us zeal for missions and evangelism. We should, we should ask him to send the spirit to us that we would have the passion for souls that we ought to have. We, we should ask him to open our mouth. Remember how Paul said, pray for me that I would open my mouth. Look, if Paul needs to pray for boldness and evangelism, you and I need to. And that we would speak boldly and clearly when we do. We should be praying for that. We should be praying for God for the particular salvation of individual people, for open doors. We should be praying for power that he alone can open their hearts, that he would do so. We ought to pray especially for the Jerusalem sinners who are most guilty, most lowly, those in prison, those performing abortions, those advancing depraved agendas in our school and society. Yes, those selling pornography. Yes, those who hate us and revile us and would do everything they could to persecute us. If only they could, we should pray for their salvation. All the people in whom Christ will find the greatest glory when they are saved in the power of his grace. Let us pray. Let us rely on the Holy Spirit and our witness, both for our willingness to witness and for its success, because Jesus has promised us power from on high through his Holy Spirit. Then I want to conclude what a privilege it's been to be here just to worship with you. I'm always glad to speak on the theme of gospel missions. I want to conclude by saying, never believe that your witness in Christ is wasted. Never believe that your labors will be in vain. And that is in part because the first and primary goal of our missions is not conversions, it is the glory of Christ. This, this goal is always achieved through missions, that Christ is glorified in his compassion for a lost world. Henry Martin saw very few converts in all his years in India, but he committed himself to the Lord. And now we look back and we see he was the principal agent, the, 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 the spark that led to millions of people coming to the Lord. We don't get to know our place in that. We do it for the glory of Christ. We know it is not in vain. 
1866, Robert Thomas, another missionary, left China. He'd been in China doing missions. He had a burden on his heart for the people of Korea. And he, he thought that there was a relationship between the Chinese language and the Korean language, and he had Bibles t made up. And he got on a ship in 1866 for Pyongyang. And as his ship was going into the harbor, the uh, authorities began firing on the ship. And their, their shots began hitting the ship. And the ship began to sink. And so Thomas loaded up his arms with Bibles and he struggled to the shore. And, and he reached exhausted, soaked, wearied. He shows up on the, on the shore with the soldiers, his arms full of Bibles, and they clubbed him to death. And he died. And when he died, his arms opened. And the Bibles fell on the sands. And one of the soldiers picked up one of those Bibles and read it and became the first evangelist of that missionary work. It is not in vain. Let me give you another example of a woman who witnessed to a young man some years ago. Uh, the man had moved into her apartment building and she was moving out. And he offered to carry some boxes down to her car. And so he did. And she meekly asked in the parking lot with her, her trunk open if he was looking for a good church. And he quickly said no. And she began trying to witness. And he body languaged her out of it. He didn't, he didn't sign up for a gospel witness. And so she got in the car and she blurted out the church's name saying that if he went to that church, he would hear God's word faithfully preached. And I've always imagined her driving away, kicking herself for her lame, for the weakness of her witness. But of course you may wonder how I know these details. I know them because I was a young man. And a series of events took place, and the Lord, my, namely my mama, calling me and telling me I'd go to church. And I went across the street to the nearby Presbyterian church, and they were raising money for communist rebels. That was the Lord's way, a very effective way of keeping me out of the liberal church. And I thought, remember that young lady in the car? What was the name of that church? And I remembered she, all she told me was the name of the church, and three months later, I, I wouldn't have known if she hadn't told me. I remember I went to that church, 10th Presbyterian Church, the gospel was preached. That night I got on my knees, I surrendered my life to Jesus. Is she ever going to know? Isn't it certain she drove away thinking, oh, I was lame, I was cowardly, I was weak, and I was saved. Your witness is not in vain. And so I now preach to you that Jesus Christ died and was raised again from the dead so that you, by believing in him, might be blessed with repentance and forgiveness of sin. I preach to sinners, urging you to repent, to receive Jesus in personal faith, and to be saved from the guilt of your sin before a holy God. I preach to believers, and I implore you to be missionaries with Christ and witnesses of his gospel to Jerusalem and the world. And he has promised you that he will bless his gospel. In fact, trust me, I know, we preachers know how weak is our persuasion. I cannot change the heart. I cannot change the life. But what has God promised? He will send power from on high to bless his word. It will not go forth in vain. That is true. I believe that in my preaching. You are to believe that in your witnessing because it's true. And Jesus says, you are my witnesses. And he promises that if we will be servants of his gospel, he says, you will be clothed with power from on high. 
Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus and his teaching. We thank you for his redemptive work that he did die for our sins. And he has risen from the grave and he is not on vacation. He is seated on the right hand. Lord, I know even as I've been preaching, Jesus has been praying for me with power. And so, Father, we pray that you would work your gospel with power in our lives. Work in the lives of believers. Help us to understand this world and this age and our lives more rightly. And, Father, I pray for every sinner who's not saved. Yes, I pray for the Jerusalem sinner, that you would glorify your mercy and grace by opening their hearts to believe and through believing to be saved. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.